Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, it's Brendan here with Mark, as always, with Mark here. And visit our website, vetgurus.com, where you can view all the past episodes, do searches for your favourite subjects. You might be just interested in birds, so you can do a search for the bird podcasts and leave all the others out. So this is an undated episode special that we're throwing in in between other episodes, Mark, because we might be away somewhere. You may be sick, I may be sick, you're probably out taking photos somewhere so you can't get on the internet and we we want to talk about something of interest to all the vets who have an interest in unusual exotic pets that will be our main topic which we will get stuck into shortly mark but before that you were talking off air about puppies you wanted to talk about a bit of a syndrome or a, or a run on a particular illness in puppies, and what is that, Mark? Well, it, you know what it's like, Brendan. We we do seem to, you know, in often veterinarians talk about the multiples of three and the cases that come in. Um, but um, we've we've uh, we've had that sort of run of three in a type of uh, problem that we see in puppies that I haven't seen for many years. Um, and there's some features of it I thought I might just bounce off you and get your opinion. And what I'm talking about. Um, is coccidiosis. Now, it's a disease that, um, as a vet who works with birds and and other exotic species, I'm well familiar with because we see it regularly in those guys. But um, I can't tell you um, that I see it a lot in puppies, but just over the the last month or two, we've had... um, We've had several life-threatening cases of coccidiosis in uh, in um, recently purchased seven to nine-week-old puppies, and um, and there's some features of it that uh, that are sort of you know um, grabbed me um, and made me wonder whether there's something more going on. Probably the first thing uh, that struck me about these cases, Brennan, was that they were probably a little bit more resistant to our normal dose rate of toltrazuril, the, the, the uh, BACOX, the drug that we would usually use for these guys. Um, and and obviously the, this is an off-label use for this drug, um, but um, we routinely use it uh, uh, for many cases of coccidiosis. Um, but um, I'm finding that... Um, that we're, we're having to consider doses maybe um, two or three times higher than the dose we would normally use. I wonder whether that's a resistance problem or whether um, the dogs are not mounting the appropriate complementary immune response. Um, just it's always interesting when we have these, um, uh, you know, in cases that we think we're, we're all over, that we've been in practice for so long that we've seen it all, and then a new version of something that we've, uh, we've known for a while comes out and it just makes us think what might be going on. What do you think, Brendan? I have no idea, Mark. <laughs> I have no idea. So my, my question to you or questions would be, so how, how old are these puppies? Did they, how many of, 
them died? It sounds like some of them may have died. Did we they did, have the three? We, we did. Um, we've lost one of the th- probably three cases that I, that jumped to mind. One did pass away, and we've been able to pull two of them through. But as I said, we uh, I wouldn't the response we've gotten to the routine dose, and we don't like to give. Uh, you know, we don't like to be. Um, we like people to go searching for dose rates themselves and authenticate the dose rate for their circumstance, but I don't mind saying that we would pretty routinely use 10 milligrams per kilogram once a day for three days of the tall trazurel. Um, but we've had to, uh, with some of these puppies, get two doses that are um, 30 milligrams per kilogram before we see the the uh, number of, of coccidia oocysts decline in their uh, in their diarrhoea. And crikey's, Brendan, they... When they first come in, they really make us think that they're parvo puppies. They're, um, mm. you know, nine weeks old. They've got a horrible hemorrhagic diarrhea, and doesn't matter where the blood comes from. Hemorrhagic diarrhea smells, you know, here in Australia. That makes us think of parvo virus. And um, but yeah, they, they test negative on parvo. They test negative on corona, um, and we pick up the oocysts in a float and. Uh, um, and yeah, they, they're difficult cases to treat. We obviously have to treat them in very, you know, you, a hemorrhagic diarrhea in a puppy, whether it's parvovirus or coccidia, gets largely similar treatment. Um, uh, but in the uh, case of the coccidia puppies, obviously we're thinking about varying our dose of uh, Baycox, Brendan. Mm. And have you noticed any other? Um links with with those particular three cases are they poor husbandry generally with the with yeah. the owners yeah i think it will interest unfortunately the the owners that present them to us are, um uh you know new owners and they're trying to do the right thing but when we have gone back through uh, the history contacted the breeders um without being too judgmental i would definitely suggest their um well, they're probably not active members of the Australian Council of Kennel Clubs um, and uh, they, they probably are doing a little bit of what might be called backyard breeding um, rather than sticking to the mainstay. So there definitely is the, the husbandry aspect, the husbandry of the mother, the husbandry of the pups before they come to their new home. Um, but these things are not, you know, that, that sort of story, a backyard pup is not a... A new thing, um, but this uh, pattern of seeing coccidia for at least in our practice is something that um, I wouldn't have said we've, uh, you know, it's a, a, a relatively new thing for us. Yeah, and I presume you're picking them up because you're just doing a basic fecal smear or a float on them um, on on that on that diary. Is that how? Of course, um, and I think that's one of the things that um, you know we would routinely. Um, but the, it's the habits of a lifetime, Brendan. When you're dealing with birds and reptiles and uh, uh, cats and uh, guinea pigs and ferrets you um you're always looking at their stools and and uh floating them smearing them staining them um and i know that might not be routinely done uh until there's an obvious problem in a puppy but yeah we're doing that um as part of the initial workup uh when we're doing the tests for parvo and corona and uh and and yeah out pop these lovely little um, uh, uh, coccidia oocysts, fried eggs, as we often describe them, uh, to uh, 
of the veterinary science students who spend some time with us, but um, they're well, there in the, numbers. We're the same at our clinic, Mark, and, yeah, we, we know our shit, don't we, <laughs> as wildlife, um, unusual pet veterinarians. Not only, not only do we talk it, we know it because I'd, I'd hate to think if we counted up the number of faecal checks our, our clinic do in-house, it would certainly be in, in um, well over the 1,000 um, a year. Um, probably much more than that. Um, yeah, so yes, it's it's amazing what you can see on a on a bit of poo, Mark, on a bit of poo. So there we go. So speaking of poo, um, we need to segue into a couple of news stories, Mark. <laughs> and I think you wanted to talk about a, quite an unusual um, story, which the story may have been a load of um, a load of. Um, comment um and that is about a maybe a fish or maybe a bird what is it mark well i love these stories brandon where where um where a photo pops up of uh of a particular animal um that might have a um deformity of some sort and then they're um you know taken from a particular angle and then all of a sudden the the heading becomes um you know is it real or is it fake eight bizarre hybrid animals and here we have the half fish half bird from china um and uh, uh, it is a uh, well a, a little bit unusual a bit of a shocking uh, photograph there's an associated video um uh, a, a common freshwater carp that's been hooked up by a uh, chinese fisherman in Ginchow, and uh and of course it uh, it has a huge bulbous noggin um almost like a you know sort of a dolphin but the way it twists the fish's mouth around so that it's sort of directed you know down to the bottom of the water the ventral aspect does make it look a little bit like a beak um but the uh but the um you know the deformity is the gigantic uh um mass on the fish's forehead um, and I know there's uh, the article does talk about the potential causes for this that the carp may have had a um, you know been influenced by a pollution or some other uh, problem in its developmental stage and now has a, a deformity. But I I would be not surprised if this uh, if this was um, worked up that that fish actually has some sort of uh, abscess or tumor on its head. Um, unfortunately, we'll never know, Brendan, because the fish. It looked like it had a beak, like a head. Some people even thought it looked like a pug, which I thought I don't, I don't know who was insulted by that particular description. But um, immediately after catching it and taking some footage, the oddly shaped fish, the oddly shaped head um, attached to the fish was uh, a return to the water to swim free, nibbling <laughs> at the bottom of the pond. And and never and never and and sink to the bottom. I think mate. <laughs> one thing's for sure: if I ever end up near that river, I ain't drinking the water or swimming in that river, Mark. That is my comment um, because I'd be concerned about potential pollutants um, causing developmental problems, um, and hence the pug-headed half fish, half bird um, that's been reported. It's half fish, yeah. half bird, half dog. Yes, that's right. Half, I was going to say something else, but we are a G-rated or a PG-rated um, podcast, so I won't um, say 
the other thought that jumped into my mind, Mark. So, yes, and that that's another a little article or that was brought to our attention by our our serial um, emailer, Doug Black. So thank you, Doug, for sending that one in. You're always on the lookout. You've got way too much time spending time on the internets, interwebs, um, finding these sort of articles for her. I've got a fun feel-good article, Mark. I think it's a feel-good one, and that is that a Kelpie, which is an Australian cattle dog breed, attract a record price of more than $22,000 at an Australian auction, Mark. And um, the reason why I am reading this one out, apart from the fact you sent it to me, <laughs> is that it. Um, I was reading through it and I did notice that the auction was held in Casterton, which is in Western Victoria. And I remember very fondly, Here's a story you didn't know about, Mark. Um, spending time on a farm as part of my veterinary student days on f- doing some farm work in Casterton um, in the Western District of Victoria. And I stayed with a very lovely family um, in Casterton. And I do remember that they had some excellent working dogs there that were that were Kelpies. And um, they're pretty amazing, these working um, dogs on the farms, aren't they? That I, I really um, admire the... The way they've been um, trained and I suppose the way they've been bred as well. But um, by the look of it, with this, um, the previous record was $14,000, Mark, and this one was a 22200 sale for this um, dog. So let's hope it um, it knows how to round up the, the sheep or the cattle. It was a fascinating, um, fascinating story that was picked up by the um, local ABC here up in Newcastle, Brendan, and they, there was some quite um, heated discussion about the, um, you know, the value of a dog and obviously people who had invested quite a lot of money in maybe some of the less working breeds, shall we say, um, they, they were, um, well, flabbergasted to hear that such money would be spent on, um, and I say this in inverted commas, a common breed like a Kelpie. Um, but um, but the farmers what struck back, Brendan, on the radio, the farmers were, crikeys, you city dwellers have no idea of the value of a dog. And, um, and there was quite extensive discussion how a dog like this would take the place of an employee, that um, that the $20,000, $22,200 was money well spent because uh, such a dog um, would could easily replace one or maybe even two employees and thereby free up the farmer and uh, his funds to uh, do other things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, dogs that have these special skills that uh, can round up the animals, that can work in with... Uh, uh, with their human uh, instructors and co-workers, um, they they make a huge difference. And interestingly enough, the farmers who phoned in to the ABC were talking about um, the pressures, you know, at the moment in the Upper Hunter, at least, there's a significant drought. Um, and having a dog, which, you know, works for dog food, um, is, a, uh, um, is a considerable... Uh, 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 um, uh, thought process a considerable um role in the budgeting of a farm uh, so yeah i was interested to see this and see how it generated some interest on social media but more so the 
discussions on our local radio sparked my thoughts as well, Brendan. Yes, they're, um, and I'm sure you have seen them working these dogs. They're, 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 they're amazing and they, they, um, they're a great help to those farmers. And I, as you, as you were talking then, I just do remember with my farm visits that, um, the farmer, um, or farmers um, always seem to have a favourite working dog. I don't know whether you found that, Mark, but there was always one that was a favourite, and, and more often than not, it was um, it was not necessarily the best working dog, and and it certainly got favouritism. And I even worked on a couple of farms where that particular dog for a fa- for a working dog, um, which was. Um, sacrilege they were allowed inside the house and they'd sleep on their little chair inside the house often beside the farmer after his long day or her long day at work um the dog would sit next to them did did you find that on your farm work um placements or did you not do farm work placements when you were a veterinary student no no i definitely spent some time on farms as, as we all do as veterinary students um and just like you i uh, i um saw the way that um Farm dogs, which from the outside you sort of think, oh, they're working dogs. They, uh, you know, they they're not uh, they 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 have a special role to play, and it's sort of more distant and um, utilitarian maybe than uh, than what our companion animals have. But, but as you point out, once you actually enter the lives of those farmers and live with them for a couple of weeks while you do your prac work, you see that uh, that those working dogs, well, they. They, and particularly the, the uh, special ones get treated just like our companion animals in the suburbs. And, uh, yeah, there, there often was that, uh, that one. Often a female, in my, my experience, would, uh, would work her way into the affections of, um, of the, uh, the farmer and, and uh, end up um, with some privileges. Yep, I think that's a pattern that we might see if we looked hard enough repeated at many farming locations across the country. Yes. So there we go, $22,000. Um, and I'm sure in some regions of the world where, where there's also working dogs, um, that, um, may, that may be a um, very cheap working dog, um, depending on which region of the world you live in or are from you have one more news story mark for us brendan this one makes me angry i know <laughs> i know we've been hey that's my um, whole, that's my gig I'm we, the one who gets we've been working so hard to be upbeat and cheery and and happy but this there's so many aspects to this story that make me upset i just have to get it out there so um the article in question is uh titled fact checking Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, can you really give a blood transfusion from a T-Rex to a Velociraptor? Whoops, I should have announced a bit of a spoiler alert there. (laughs) But this is a sort of movie I'm sure that everyone's already seen or if they haven't, they won't care about uh, that particular part of the story being spoiled. But I'm going to go further. So if you are a desperate Jurassic World fan who hasn't seen Fallen Kingdom yet, switch off for a minute or just fast forward. Um, but the story goes, oh, and these, the, the bloody photo, one of the, even before the story, Brendan, there's no feathers on these dinosaurs. I know that the, the uh, Jurassic Park traditionalists, they go, oh, but this is just a story. It's not real. It's not a documentary. But I think if you're making a story about dinosaurs, you have a responsibility to put 
bloody feathers on the things. If you don't do it properly, well, won't make me happy at least. But if you do make a dinosaur like a velociraptor, an invented dinosaur like Blue, and they are hit by a life-threatening bullet wound, um, and they endure a rapid loss of blood, how, you know, the last one of its species, how are you going to save them? Well, um, paleo veterinarian, that's a job I want, Brendan. That's another thing I'm angry about. No one told me that I could, I could become a paleo veterinarian. Anyway, the paleo veterinarian, Zia Rodriguez, saves Blue with a blood transfusion from a Tyrannosaurus rex. So this obviously raises the question, could you do this? Now, this is my next thing I'm angry about. But the, 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 the people doing this fact-checking have phoned around but haven't phoned you or I, Brendan, the people who could really, like, immediately give them the answer. Fortunately, they've spoken to other veterinarians um, and not less qualified uh, commentators, um, and they did get to speak with, uh, first of all, Laura Witter, um, who is in general practice in New York, um, and she she was, um, you know, quite uh, quite uh, uh, sensible in suggesting that um, blood transfusion between different species of animals, different species of dinosaur in this case, um, could be done, that it would be risky and probably not wise to repeat it, um, uh, but, um, uh, uh, but it could be done. Um, the... Uh, the other, the other. I'll, I'll tell you what. This is the last thing that gets me really angry. The, I, I, I sort of, um, Dr. Catherine Quisenberry, who's an exotic animal specialist, who I sort of, you know, um, uh, Dr. Quisenberry's written a very famous textbook on exotic animal medicine, and um, and so her authority um, is definitely not to be challenged, but. There's something she says later on, Brendan. I'll just draw it to your attention. And crikey, is that uh, um, you are me, angry? Left me a bit upset. But uh, Dr. Quisenberry definitely points out that um, as a as a uh, as a fact as a, a consequence of the fact that dinosaurs are probably best, you know, they're they're adapted birds. To be honest with you, they're just gigantic ancient birds. Um, they're probably uh, more closely related to some of our modern birds than they are to our modern reptiles. And, of course, those of us that do work with birds know that it is a perfectly reasonable thing to do the Xeno transfusions. Um, I would have uh, quite regularly pulled some blood from one of our sulfur-crested cockatoos to uh, to save the life of uh, Galar, um, particularly after I've done lipoma surgery on it. Um, and so I'm well aware that you can do this, and I expect that um, you could do just the same thing, that, that uh, our Velociraptor and T-Rex will be as closely related as uh, my Galar and Cockatoo, and, and uh, the, uh, the transfusion is likely to work and um, quite possibly could save the life of the, uh, the uh, Velociraptor. So that's a good thing. But in her explanation as to why you might not have a, um, a, um, what is it, allo transfusion, a transfusion from a, a, an individual of the same species, Dr. Cuisenbury says in her phone interview um, that uh, otherwise uh, it might be done in a place where blood is not accept accessible. 
In the United States, veterinarians keep stores of blood. But, and I quote here, if you're out in the boonies in Australia, there is no access. <laughs> what is going on here? What reputation do we have? Well, you, you're in the boonies, um, <laughs> which I presume is, is uh, it's a term for the middle of nowhere, isn't it, um, the boonies? So, yes, no, it was quite an interesting um, little comment there, a little quote. And, yes, it's obviously got your goat mark. <laughs> You've got very angry. I've never heard you this angry before. <laughs> and um, about one particular article, I think, look, the take-home message, Mark, is one, don't be angry. I'm never angry. Um, and don't worry, it's only Jurassic World um, because why would you um, get upset about that terrible series of movies, Mark? Um, although I'll tell you what does get me a little bit angry. As you know, I do like a good science fiction movie, Mark, and in virtually every science fiction movie that's been made where there's contact with an alien civilization. It is always the human medic that is contacting that alien civilization, and they have no right to do that. Veterinarians are the only registered people who can deal with non-human animals, um, or, or or any any animals other than humans. Non-human species. So, non-human species, exactly. So we, it should be a veterinarian on all these spaceships that are out there um, contacting aliens because vets are the ones who know comparative anatomy and not just one species. So we should be on that spaceship, Mark, contacting all these alien species, and we should be out there. Maybe you should be in the next Jurassic World movie, Mark, I think, as a consultant. <laughs> I think I'm, and, I'm, I'm really working towards the title of paleo-veterinarian. There's got to be another. What's the name for a veterinarian who goes on a spaceship to another planet to work on the aliens? It. Oh, I've gone blank on it, but there is a. When, when we get onto the next topic, I'll do a quick search for it, Mark, and I'll, I'll get back to you in a moment because, as you know, we like to go with the flow with our podcast, and we don't cut and paste and stop the recording. We just, we just talk, don't we? So I think we should talk and get on to our main topic, Mark, because it, it's almost half an hour in. And this is in response to a, an email from one of our subscribers um, who both of us know, and that's Tom. And thanks for the email, Tom. And I think I will just read out the email, Mark, and then you can get stuck into your thoughts on, on his conundrum and here is his email. Hey guys, I've been really enjoying your podcast series. It has been very helpful for a vet whose passion for unusual pets exceeds his experience. I think he's talking about me there, Mark. I was wondering if you could do a podcast on the basics to hospitalizing unusual pets. I currently have converted one of my colleagues to take an interest in exotic pets but I've not been so successful with the nursing staff. I'm looking to run some small staff training about hospitalising birds and exotics. I'd podcast about what you guys would think would be a big help to work out the most important points to cover, as like most practices, time is at a premium. Well, I think he touches on some fantastic points there, Mark, and, um, yeah, we uh, I'm sure we're going to, 
end up talking more than half an hour here. We'll try and limit <laughs> it to half an hour. So away you go, Mark. What are your thoughts about um, what Tom has to say? Well, you know, Brendan, I've given this matter considerable thought and um, and I find it um, there's many aspects to it that I think um, that we can uh, prepare for, that we can uh, put things in place in advance which make it... Um, which make it much more enjoyable. And, and while we'll talk about the specifics of, um, of, uh, of uh, hospital equipment and uh, what uh, things you might need to adapt, we'll talk about that in a minute, I do think there's some things that are good to, um, to prepare for, to have in mind. And I think when you're trying to convince other, there's two things, I think, when you're trying to convince your um, your employer or the support staff that you work with um, that this might be a good thing. You've got to, um, first of all, convince them that it's going to make the practice money. That's the thing your employer will be interested in. And um, and as you and I have said so many times on this podcast, um, exotic and unusual pets, avian pets, they're not um, the poor cousin of our companion animals. People who have them love them and they are are very happy to pay as long as they feel like they're getting value for money. So I think uh, um, um, convincing your employer that that's the case is, um, and, um, you know, I know most employers are perfectly happy to listen to ways their business might make more money. So that's the direction I go in there. But for the other support staff and the nursing staff, um, my experience is that they're probably going to be most enthusiastic. They, they all enjoy, um, you know, the, the um, novelty of looking at uh, unusual species. And um, But I think they, my experience, particularly more recently, is that they're really keen to make sure they're doing it properly. They don't want to do it half-baked. They don't want to, um, you know, uh, they take the responsibility of the life of the animal that they have really seriously and they want to do it properly. So if they feel that they're cutting corners or not doing it properly, um, then their enthusiasm will rapidly wane um, and uh, and they'll become very averse to the work. So I think um, trying to convince them, do a little bit of training and making sure the right equipment's there and making sure the practice is prepared is a very, very good thing. And the first thing I'd do before I even got my first unusual pet in is make sure I had access to um, a good series of um, uh, um, you know books, uh, websites. Um, a shout out here to our friends in the Veterinary Information Network, a subscription-based online resource which has a huge amount of information now. Unusual pets and uh, avian. Uh, veterinarians, uh, webs, uh, Facebook page, these sorts of um, links can provide a huge amount of information about treatment, about husbandry, having these resources that you can turn to quickly um, to learn about nutrition or um, to find a particular handout, um, to look at photographs, all these things before you even look at the first one. I think it's excellent to build up that network of information that uh, uh, the, the resource information resources that um, can inform both your staff and yourself to do that work. Brendan, I also think that um, uh, one of the specific resources that I've found exceedingly useful is um, 
And I, once again, Vin gives us access to this, is one of the exotic animal formularies, one of the um, stressful things about having new and unusual species. Um, one of the first stressful things, I suppose, is that um, the medications that you're going to give to them often are given at different dose rates and having a reliable formulary to, uh, to provide you with information about therapeutic decisions um, is, uh, is really, really, I think, one of the first bits of information I'd want to get. Um, do you, which formulary do you use, Brendan? You've just switched off, busted. Either that or I've been disconnected. Sorry, Mark. No, I was, uh, I've done my usual. I had my, I was on mute because I was typing away a little bit. Um, so what formula do I use? Probably two. Um, one of them you sort of, you've already mentioned, and that's the, the online formulary that is with VIN. Um, and they actually have two formulas there, don't they? They have the plums formulary and they also have their own little VIN one. I don't know whether you've looked at that one much, Mark, but um, they've slowly building up their own formula as well. So that's always good because you can just jump online and, and um, do a bit of a search. And while you're on there, you search the forums. And the other, the, the, the main actual um, one that I can ha hold in my hands is the exotic animal formula, which is what in its fifth edition now. Is that correct, Mark? Indeed it is. I think you reviewed it in the AB. Did you review it in the ABJ, Brendan? Did I? Maybe I did. I don't <laughs> think I did. Or maybe I did. Yes, I did. I think I did. Oh, I don't know. Yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm losing my mind again, Mark, losing my mind. Um, but um, so, yeah, that, so it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because when, you, when you're looking at what sort of resources and textbooks, for instance, as you mentioned, um, are the ones that you need when you're starting out in a particular area. Um, it, it soon balloons, doesn't it, to 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 half a dozen or a dozen um, textbooks that you think you need, and it can be quite challenging trying to narrow down to just two or three because they're often not that um, inexpensive, are they? Being a anything that is labelled medical in any any way or form is often the price jumps up dramatically, um, or as a teaching resource. So, I think it's trying to get some of the general resources, and yeah, the formula is certainly one you'll need there. Um, and and I really like, as far as general textbooks go, for to encourage staff, both um, nursing staff and veterinarians, um, as a good resource is the um, British Small Animal uh, Veterinarian Association book. So the BSAVA um, books on exotic pets, and there's a, a, a few of them, including one specific for species like the rabbit one, for instance, but I've always found them quite, considering how what amount of information they pack into those little softback books and that they're, they're actually quite affordable compared with some of the other textbooks. So I always put them on the list of, of ones that people should try and try and um, purchase um, early on in their, um, in their um, trying to develop a little library of textbooks. So, but yeah, it's a, it's challenging. Um, what, what would putting it back to you, Matt, what would probably be two or three books that you'd suggest people starting out dealing with the unusual pet pets uh, the, probably well, two or three that's a yeah, um, I'd already a challenge yeah. um, but I definitely um, one of the books that I use on a daily basis because we see lots of um, uh, reptiles is the latest um, 
uh, Mater, um, that we, I would be opening that book like on a daily basis um, just to uh, to review the, the uh, information about um, particular aspects of reptile medicine or surgery. Um, so I certainly would have that on my list. And then I... Uh, so we've got a couple of, and I'm, I cannot for the life of me remember their names, but the other book that I would be opening on a daily basis would be the, um, the, the, the radiographic, the, um, uh, we've got a couple of textbooks that have extensive um, uh, radiographic interpretations and, um, and particularly when we take lots of radiographs of our birds and uh, small mammals, and um, and they're not. But I do regularly need to be reminded of the details of their radiographic anatomy, um, and so those references are regularly um, creased and folded and opened at particular pages. And uh, and I'll make sure that I place the names of those books in, um, in uh, for you, Brendan, to put in our um, podcast notes. Um, but they're probably the ones I'd make sure that. Uh, that I had. Um, I also think that um, in terms of talking about training um, and uh, resources before I even get a patient in, um, I, you and I both know that um, one of the key things about uh, um, about uh, having the staff feel comfortable dealing with these uh, animals is that they need to get a, a much more extensive um amount of historical data that we need to know about the husbandry, about the provenance, uh, about the length of time that uh, the owners have had these animals, what they've been feeding them. Um, the, the, uh, and it's good to have some scripts and maybe even some um, questionnaires that the staff can use that collates, collects and collates this data because um, it's, it's, a, um, it's a, I find, a critically important step to make sure that uh, you're, you're getting positive outcomes, having that um, historical data, particularly the husbandry data, can make a critical uh, difference to the direction that you take with treatment um, and, um, and the outcomes that you get. Yes. It's, um, yeah. Yes, that's all, <laughs> yes. I, all I need to say for that one, Mark. You've answered that um, very well, then, Mark. So and the I'm, next, so, the so next, I think Nick, uh, it was it was uh, Tom, wasn't it? Yes, Tom said it. Tom, yes. yes. Um, so Tom was, I think Tom was hinting more at the, you know, the practical logistic things that need to be done in the hospital to make sure it's um, it's uh, um, unusual and avian pet friendly um, and so I think uh, it's important to uh, first of all point out that um, that it's really in early on in this process it's good to identify either a specific location in the hospital or um, for an arrangement in the hospital where these animals can be isolated and um, I think that's one of the the, uh, the biggest things that ends up causing people distress is that we have a you know a prey animal next to a predator um, that a bird can sense that a cat's in the next cage. So I think uh, making sure that we've got, um, uh, maybe it might be that there's only two rooms and at any given time um, it's important to keep the predators and prey animals separate, the rabbits not near the hunting dogs, for example. Um, and, and obviously your greyhounds need to be kept away from those rabbits, Brendan. 
they wouldn't know what to do with That's, them. Um, oh no, they I would. Think, they would. Um, they would lick their lips. Unfortunately, yes, they see something fluffy and small, and um, they want to run and chase and um, bite. So yes, we keep them away from all the furries, which is why I don't have rabbits as as pets at home um, because I don't think it's compatible with life for the rabbit unfortunately um i've just remembered one of those textbooks mark um, and that is the clinical radiology of exotic companion mammals and that is this book by yeah that's the one by vittorio capello and angela lennox um it is actually out of print but the ebook is not out of print i'm pretty sure you can download it as an ebook or purchase it as an ebook mark um, and there is a couple of other exotic pet radiology textbooks and we'll chase them as well. Um, so, yes, hospitalising those patients, it, it's it, and it doesn't, uh, yes, the, the first point, and that's an extremely important point, trying to keep the ferret um, away from the rabbit, um, away from the rat, away from the snake, um, and don't have all those species lined up next to each other um, is, is certainly an excellent point. But it doesn't have to be anything too fancy as far as ha- hospitalising them, especially for short periods, um, day day or overnight hospitalisation. And we can use similar sort of um, hospital cages um, with some modification. The obvious one there is is um, escape-proof for those small mammals, Mark, that um, are very small, some of these um, tiny mammals that we may hospitalise like our rats and our, and our mice. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I've had the odd rat that has escaped um, out of a box that wasn't um, enclosed um, properly and we have spent a considerable amount of time searching through our clinic to hopefully return this patient to the client that's arrived to pick up their little small mammal. Any any veterinarian who tells you they have not gone through that experience just doesn't work with exotic (laughs) animals. Yes, well, even even with dogs and cats, and I'm sure you've had the dog or the cat that um, is being released back to the client and it slips the lead out in the waiting room and the, the waiting room door happens to be open and the dog is out of there. Um, and it's a horrible feeling, isn't it, um, when that happens? So, Mark, do you want to um, follow on from what I've just started as far as the actual enclosure the enclosures that we can use and and the basics of of what hospitalize hospitalizing these patients um entail and i think that um you've uh hit the the um nail on the head there brendan uh just being very conscious of the fact that these animals being prey animals being relatively small they uh will push themselves to escape um, particularly from unfamiliar circumstances. And so we just really have to um, always be aware of uh, how an animal might escape. But with these species, we need to be uh, additionally on our guard. And so we will often use, um, uh, you know, uh, your traditional bird cage, um, probably resting inside one of our um, hospital cages if we're uh, using, you know, obviously we've got a, a, a a number of, of purpose-built heated enclosures, but there are times when the bird might not particularly fit in or we've got too many patients in. And so um, your uh, wire bird cage inside a, a, a cat, cat, you know, a, a normal hospital cat cage 
um, we would use something like that. Um, we often use plastic tubs. Of, we've got a, a very significant collection of the plastic tubs that you might buy from a, a uh, um, you know, one of those uh, Bunnings or one of the hardware stores. Um, and it's good to have a bunch of them of different sizes to have them have a number of little holes in them so that air can pass through. So they're not, uh, they seal off very well, Brendan, those little tubs. Um, and, uh, and just um, using a, a soldering iron to punch some very small holes in so air can circulate. Um, uh, and I think you've just got to use, um, you know, it's one of those areas of practice which encourages you to use uh, a little bit of inventiveness and so um, uh, uh, you can regularly um, use things that are relatively inexpensive you can adapt them um, and set them up so that the animal can be housed and uh, kept away from predators and um, and be safe um, the, the and what do you use or recommend for keeping them warm you, you, What's it? They led me right into the next topic that each of those um, cages, those enclosures, um, one of the factors that you've got to consider because many of our uh, um, exotic, unusual avian animals or pets, when they're ill, they're not going to thermoregulate very well at all. And uh, setting them up in a, a protective environment, particularly one that's thermally supported, um, often makes a big difference to uh, how well they feel and how quickly they return to normal. So um, for the tubs, for example, um, we have uh, heat mats and cable heating um, that we would use in uh, those uh, circumstances to heat up one end of them so the animal uh, can move to and away from the, the warmth. Um, we have... Uh, lamps both uh, in the specifically designed hospital cages we have the ceramic globes that are used in uh, for example the poultry industry and they are excellent in the way they provide a gentle even heat but we'll also have clamp lamps that we might use in the exact circumstance I described before if we'd had a, um, a bird cage inside one of our uh, hospital cat cages um, the wire front and fiberglass, um, roughly metre square cages, then we might put the clamp lamp on the wire, on the um, metal bars of the, the main cage and direct it at the bird cage in the middle so that um, that uh, we're not going to burn the, the uh, enamel or the uh, plastic on the wire so we don't put it too close to the bird. Um, but um, uh, those are the sorts of ways that we tend to provide a, a gradient um, that many of these uh, animals need to uh, facilitate their recovery. We also yep, we um, one little sorry, yeah. Mark, for interrupting one little one little tip or one thing that we do, and we actually oh sorry, just whacked my microphone is is to. Um, and we sell these is little um, thermometers, digital thermometers that um, clients will purchase because we sell them for only about $10 or so. Um, and using those in those enclosures um, are certainly useful because you need to make sure that we do have a bit of a temperature gradient um, with all of those temporary hospital, hospital enclosures, um, as you hinted at, Mark, so the animal can not be cooked and we don't have um, 
um, roast chicken um, for that um, chook that's in your clinic there. Um, and we purchased these tiny little thermometers that also have a humidity reading on them, Mark, too, so that it's a hygrometer thermometer, and um, they're, they're fantastic. And I buy them in bulk in about 100 um, via um our friends on eBay, I think, um, and um, yeah, they they walk out the door with clients because they go to some of the pet shops and they look at um, the the temperature, the thermometers, and the um, systems that they've been sold at the the pet shops, and they might be selling them for ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty dollars, and they don't purchase something to um, monitor the temperatures in their enclosure. So it can be simple and inexpensive, like the clamps you were mentioning with those heat lamps. And um, there's lots of sites. And we'll, I think what we need to do, Mark, we'll link to some of the sites where you can purchase it, this basic equipment, um, or at least that you can in Australia to give um, Tom and um, our other listeners an idea on um, where we can buy and make these um, little enclosures to keep these animals overnight. Um, and the other one, which I don't think you did mention, did you? Were probably about to get to is the is is the basic heat discs that you put in the microwave um, to to warm up patients after they've had surgery, um, and the the wheat sacks and those sorts of types of um, under under animal heating, but being aware that you need to make sure there's a good towel or, or pad in between the animal and the, the heating product. Um, even with the fancier heat mats or heat tapes, um, you need to ensure there's the um, opportunity for that animal to get away from those. Otherwise, we end up with a cooked reptile or a cooked small mammal as well, don't we? Mark? We don't want that. The other the other piece of equipment that um, I just about, I mean, I encourage all our owners to get these and I think it's uh, um, just about mandatory for the care of these animals in hospital is a set of gram scales um, if you you know you can buy these electronic scales uh, as you said we'll post some links online um, uh, but you can pick them up for a relatively modest amount um, I think we were paying 40 or 50 dollars for ours Brendan um, but they they're pretty Quite accurate, and um, they allow us to, uh, you know, twice each day measure the body weight of these very, very small patients, and and in particular, that obviously gives us an idea of you know whether they're burning body tissue, but also their hydration status. Those uh, rapid changes over half a day or so in body weight, where an animal might, you know, a cockatiel might drop from ninety-five grams down to less than ninety, um, that's a pretty good indication that we're losing fluid um, and fluid therapy is going to be important and you will not easily pick that sort of change up um, just looking at skin turgor or and particularly for some of these birds that are you know the feathers conceal a, um, a myriad of things going on underneath so I think um, having those uh, set of gram scales is another piece of equipment I'd make sure I had at the very beginning. Definitely, and I encourage clients to buy even some cheap, cheaper scales than that and um, because you're looking at trends also. So even if the scales that the client purchases as a, as a kitchen scale to, to weigh their rat or their reptile or their bird at home um, isn't as accurate as the ones that we have in the clinic, they 
they if they if they do the right thing and weigh their bird or their reptile every every few days or every week or so, then they they will see the trend of it potentially maybe losing weight and 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 then think about bringing that animal into the clinic to get um to get examined. Yeah. So what was the next bit you had on the list of things to to chat to about? This is um, one I I, um, I specifically was thinking about um, the relationship with support staff with the veterinary nurses. I I know that. Um, in terms of feeling that they're providing an excellent level of care, they really want to make sure they have appropriate nutrition for those patients. And this is something that, um, you know, you can't always predict exactly what you're going to need and you do need some flexibility. Um, but there is, you know, I think um, making sure you've got some uh, hay and pellets and once again a shout-out to, to Small Animal Nutrition and uh, Oxbow who produce um, the Timothy grass hay we use in hospital and um, their pellets. Um, the, just even having um, a little bit of uh, bok choy and whatnot in the fridge so that uh, the animals that are unfamiliar with uh, those pellets uh, might have a go at something that they're more familiar with. Um, having a set of things like that, um, uh, some insects, uh, uh, there's an, you know, our wonderful Wombaroo foods we can use, um, the supplements that they make, um, and just having a range of seeds and hand-rearing foods for birds. I think if you set yourself up with these foods, um, then that definitely encourages the support staff to take their level of care for these animals to the next level. Um, and uh, and it's not horribly expensive. It does take a little bit of organisation and planning ahead, uh, but it does make things that much easier once we get to the point of having to treat them. Um, I didn't mention, as I was talking through nutrition there, um, I mean, the thing that we would use most frequently with our uh, rabbits and guinea pigs is the critical care. Um, we'd syringe so much of that stuff into those sick animals that um, we'd be lost without it. And so making sure that you've got some for use in hospital and then um, some to send home because it's almost invariably the case that people are going to have to continue for some time, um, that's the sort of uh, preparation we like to make for nutrition in these animals. Um, is there other things that you keep in the hospital to keep them fed, Brendan? Well, I suppose that the simple equipment to help with that process of feeding them, so that is, for instance, with the thicker compounds like the critical care that um, are a little bit gluggy um, and may not fit through a normal syringe, it is um, purchasing, and they are quite cheap, some feeding syringes um, which have a wider bore um, outlet um, on them, so it makes things a hell of a lot, lot easier when we're gavaging um, those patients. And same story with the with the birds and the reptiles, um, having those um, crop needles um, are fantastic. And those, you know, I think I have a, a set of crop needles that I probably purchased 20, 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago that I'm, I'm still using. Um, they, they last a very long time and um, they're quite inexpensive. And I think, again, you can buy them very easily and, and simply and cheaply on, on eBay. So it's equipment to help um, actually get that um, nutrition into them. Um, 
the other obvious easy one that every clinic will have a, a, a blankets or towels to, to wrap up these patients if you need to sort of restrain them gently and firmly to, to be able to get that nutrition into them. Um, so that's one thing I, I thought of when you were, when you were talking through the, the process of, of the, the feeding formulas. But yeah, the good news is most of these formulas are, are inexpensive. The other big one that we use a lot of, as well as the critical care, is the um, the Hills AD or the Royal Canaan Recovery Diet, um, which is a high calorie um, carnivore type diet. And we, I'd often mix that fifty fifty with some of these um, um, omnivores um, and use that as a slurry with feeding feeding them. And um, they come in quite small cans, and we often have that those in stock anyway for for dogs or cats that um, are anorexic or recovering post surgery. So we use that a fair bit, and I'm sure most clinics will have dealt with those sorts of um, supplements as well. Um, I mean, jumping back to to one of the comments that um, Tom had there was saying, how do I encourage um, my nursing staff to show an interest or, and it may be in other clinics, how do we encourage the, the other vets um, or the boss um, or bosses to have an interest in unusual pets or, or exotic pets? And I, I think the couple of points that I always think of and, and, and recommend um to people who ask me that question is one um get the basic gear in the clinic which is what we've been chatting about so that um the 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 staff are not fearful about um dealing with the animals um undergo some basic training with them to show them that hey you know um you can do it um <laughs> you can feed this snake you can feed this um rabbit you can feed this um bird and this is how we do it um and also I I'd probably find the opposite to what Tom was finding with one, one of his staff members in that uh, my staff are usually um, super keen to actually handle these animals because they think, gee, isn't it fantastic that we get to deal with a snake and a koala and a, and a lizard and a, um, and a um, little crocodile um, today? Aren't we lucky um, to be able to deal with these unusual pets and exotic pets? So I've found it the opposite in, in my clinic, so I'm not quite sure what's going on with that that um, nursing staff, maybe she's a bit fearful of, of dealing with them. So perhaps it's just taking time out to spend a bit of time with him or her um, to, to show them how amazing these animals are that we have the privilege to, to treat and to, to deal with and to care for. And um, once they get their confidence up, I think they'll be as keen as, as you, Tom, to deal with them. Um, any comments on that, Mark? No, I was going to, one other thing I was going to add, Brendan, was that um, we... When you back in the dark ages, when you and I started doing this, um, there was a whole um, additional pharmacy that you would be um, you would be needing to have to do this work. It, it's it's actually been one of the things I've noticed that um, that over the um, over the years, over the many years that I've been doing it, um, that where the, the medications that we need to treat. Uh, our unusual and exotic pets um, has become, you know, part of the normal pharmacy that you're generally using, um, with very few exceptions. Um, you're using the same medications that you would um, routinely use for dog and cat practice. So it's not a huge investment uh, that has to be made in um, the pharmaceuticals, the anaesthetics, the um, 
analgesic drugs, these things are uh, um, all going to be um, extensions of the drugs that uh, extended uses of the drugs you already have on the shelf. So I think that um, traditional uh, complaint by employers saying, you know, you, you can't do this work because we can't afford the medications that we have to have, that's fallen by the wayside. I think uh, um, generally speaking, you're going to be able to use the stuff you've got on the shelf to do an excellent job. Yes, and I think the thing that follows on from that is a bit of a beware, and that is don't guess um, with the medications because, as you and I know, Mark, there's extreme variations with dose, rate, dose rates for some of these medications that general practitioners or those in experience with unusual pets will, will pick up a, a drug or a medication that they're familiar with um, with dose rates for for other small animals like dogs and cats, for instance, um, and, and it's totally inappropriate, the dose rate, and they can end up killing the animal. Or it may be a product that should not be used at all in um, an unusual pet. So don't guess with um, these treatments. Um, phone a friend, email the vet gurus, and um, we'll send you a reply. Um, look up those formularies, um, yeah, because I think that's a big mistake um, that, you and I, Mark, have seen too many times and it is frustrating because it, it's there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know and I think I say I don't know every single day of my veterinary career and life and I tend to say it more often these days, Mark, um, and I think it's important that we need to sit back and, 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 and think, no, we don't know everything and we certainly will never know everything and, and don't think that... that you're you're a poor veterinarian if 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 you're guessing things you shouldn't be guessing and those resources we talked about um whether it be the the uh um uh, the, the books of drug doses the um uh formularies or the, the uh, contacts online as you said uh, it's good to make use of those but um but there's enough of them and people should do it but as you said, never be afraid of um, admitting that you don't know something. Both you and I, well, more me than you, have to do it every single day. I certainly do it every single day. So hopefully, um, Tom, we've given you a few ideas there um, with our rambling um, to try and help you out with encouraging your your staff. And uh, I think you really need to sit back and and have a couple of sessions with them where you get everybody together or individually and just go through some of these aspects and um, for for veterinarians or, or, or nurses or technicians who are, are struggling to convince the bosses um, that it would be of interest to treat unusual pets or exotic pets, I think one of the key factors there is, and I know we've said it several times, Mark, is that it's amazing how many new clients you pull into your clinic um, if you start seeing unusual pets. Um, and, you know, I've, I've lost count of how many clients now where I've treated the unusual pet and that pet's well and truly died um, or I've killed it I'm somewhere along the line and uh, they're not bringing an unusual pet to me they're bringing a dog or a cat and they will travel past probably 20 or 30 other veterinarians um, to visit me because 
we saw their unusual pet and and they trust us now and and they they we're out we're their local veterinarian even though we're not local to them physically um so it's a, um that's the way i'd convince the boss or try and um explain to the bosses that hey it's good for business um treating these treating these animals um and it keeps you active i mean i don't know about you mark you know one of the main reasons why i i still love Treat, treating or, and dealing with unusual pets and wildlife is is the extreme variety of the animals and the diseases that we see. It's fun, Mark. It's fun. It is fun, Brendan. And we 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 uh, um, want to encourage as many people to enjoy that fun as we possibly can. And it is, as you said, practice building. Um, there's no doubt it builds bonds. It um, encourages people to. Uh, to see us as um, people that have expertise beyond the average, and um, yes, I encourage Tom to um, to make those uh, little changes, and particularly talk to his um, his uh, colleagues in practice. And he w- it won't take long; he'll win them over. Yes, well, there we go, Mark. I think we're over the hour, and I think it's time for us to go and have a bit of a lie down. Um, and relax. So thank you all for listening, and um, don't forget to visit our website, vetgurus.com. Send us an email like Tom has, and um, we'll try our best to not only say hello but um, answer your query. And thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time